Welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining Mustache Chris and I as we weave our way through the fascinating story of the Industrial Lies Death Machine, Murder Incorporated. We are approaching the end of the story of Murder, Inc. We are finally going to see the downfall of Murder, Inc., and it will be confirmed that man can't fly, but they can sing. Each of these episodes in this series on Murder, Inc. can be enjoyed and listened to individually, but all together they tell uh, and weave a really fascinating story of Murder, Incorporated, the Mafia's killing machine. But let's move on. There's another character, Charles Workman, and he has a really interesting trial where um, Abel come in again. Yeah, Charles Workman is a... Uh, it's an interesting case in the demise of uh, Murder Inc. Because uh, it's one of the few that didn't actually end up, up in the in the death penalty. Uh, Workman was one of the hitmen in the uh, uh, on the Dutch Schultz hit, uh, and the trial opened up in uh, June 1941. And uh, yeah, Abe Rallis was uh, testifying at this trial once again, uh, and on this case, but like uh, a young lady also made an appearance too. She. Uh, she used a pseudonym, so we don't actually really we don't know her name. Um, she testified that like workmen uh, showed up to like Dutch's apartment the day after the murder, like demanding his clothes so he could burn them. I think literally was saying that like I need to burn his clothes. <laughs> she also said that like workmen would like openly talk about killing Dutch around like her and like on the streets, you know, like bragging, like, look, I took out Dutch soul. It's like, what an idiot. Like, are you, do you know what I mean? Like, what do you, <laughs> like I said, like some of these guys are not the smartest guys in the world. Like if I'm him and I took out a guy like Dutch Souls, like I'm out of town for at least a couple months. Do you know what I mean? Like, just get out of there. Don't go, don't be anywhere near there. But I don't know. Some of these guys, they, you know, was it a, just to kind of use an example of Mathatory we had talked about earlier? Now, apparently, he didn't even know the street that the Statue of Liberty was on because he was, you know, be like, he was so like closed in like his little community. Like, you know, it's like you live in New York. Like, how do you not? I don't know. It just, some of these guys are just not very smart. Um, yeah. And then the, this is where it kind of gets a little bit like, I don't know, it gets a little bit interesting. So uh, like a funeral home director, like testified that workman was employed by him during the, the time of the murder of Dutch. And, 
but he would like later he would like recant this and thus like the workman lost his alibi and then like his his lawyer would end up changing his position to like not guilty to pushing for like a no contest because like you know his witness basically lied under oath and then it was just and the evidence was actually quite thin that sticking workmen to the Dutch Schultz hits where like you had people bright you know maybe there was a lot of people bragging on the streets at the time saying I killed Dutch you know what I mean and you had Abrella staring like oh I heard it from this person or this person and so it's not like the other cases that we had talked about earlier where Abrella says like I was there I saw it I did it <laughs> um and Basically, I guess they they came to some kind of agreement where, you know, like, we're going to drop the death penalty, but you're going to get life in prison. And Workman ended up, yeah, he ended up getting life in prison. And he would end up actually getting out. Uh, I'm not sure what age he was at that time, but he ended up getting out in 1964. What was Abe Rellis doing during all of this time? He's bopping from one case to the next, but in his uh, off time, you might say, what was he doing? Oh yeah, so this is the uh, the wonderful Abrellis. This is what Abrellis is doing, you know, showing all the uh, the gratitude of uh, you know uh, being some star witness and uh, you know having his life spared and not having to pay for any of the crimes that he committed throughout his entire life. Uh, yeah, so when the guards were watching him, uh, he was actually staying. He was staying at a hotel, um, and he would have armed guards there at the the entire time. Uh, he basically just just stopped bathing. Uh, he would stop cleaning himself. So when then every time the guards would have to go in, it would smell putrid. Um, he also would cough up uh, violently and spit blood uh, and uh, like blood and spit into this cup that he would keep around. And then he would make the guards empty out the cup. Uh, thought he was dying of lung cancer. We will get into it a little bit later. Then he wasn't dying of lung cancer, but uh you know, just imagine that, you know, it's like, oh, thanks for, you know, protecting my life, guys. And oh, yeah, by the way, do you, you can you dump my uh, spit cub, you know, because, you know, if anything happens to me, it's your guys next. Right. <laughs> and, uh, just like just a real piece of work, man. Um, yeah, like they I don't know, the Abe would like taunt the guards too, talking about like the murders that he had committed and I stuff, you know, like the he would just say stuff to the guards to like set them off like just try to piss them off and like get underneath their skin like just terrorize them in a lot of ways uh i mean i even read about a story at one time where i guess he had like the he can get a hold of these uh, guards at any time and one of the guards i guess he was at it was his uh wedding night and abe knew this and he ended up like bugging him and calling him at like two o'clock in the morning saying i need this to get done like they're trying to get me yada 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 and like the guard knowing like it's his job and he had just got married ends up going there and abe's just like laughing at him you know and like literally making like spitballs kind of like you do in high school like these big giant spitballs and he would just throw them at the guards like this is this is uh the state's uh you know number one witness you know like just what a piece of work man like what do you say about any of this i mean i think in a way he must have had a complete mental breakdown just because he clearly knew that he was well obviously he everybody knew he was marked for death and then you're talking about your guards are city employees where any one of them could be easily bribed to get in to uh, meet with Relis. 
I mean, you look at Joe Valachi when he finally turned, I think they put him initially in an army base. That was the only thing that they could do that they knew was fairly much incorruptible. I also think that, you know, somebody like Abe Ellis, he's a murderer who's murdered hundreds of people. He's a psychopath, too, and this is a power trip for him. I think there's a lot of stuff going on in this guy's head. And I mean, he's not capable of, I mean, to look for rationality from somebody like him is, yeah, uh, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. I, I'm going to say, like, Abe Ellis is probably one of the... I can't think of a single thing to say good to say about him. Like, and I can't, you know what I mean? Like there's like people you could like, you could look at Stalin and go, you know what? Early in Stalin's life, like this guy robbed banks and like, he was willing to sacrifice his life for a cause that he actually believed in. And I could objectively go like, I might hate that cause, but I can think that's admirable. You know what I mean? With, with Abe, I can't look at a single thing that this guy did and think, you know what? That's admirable. I can't. I really can't. <laughs> that's uh, And that says a lot. Steve here again. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great shows like Josh Cohen's Eyewitness History and many other great shows. Go to Parthenon Podcast to learn more. And now, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Now let's move on to our next, uh, uh, you know, we're kind of working our way up the pyramid here. Lepke Bookhalter and Jacob Shapiro, what are they doing during all of this? Yeah, this is kind of one of the more crazy stories in the uh, downfall of murder rink. Uh, Lepke and Jacob would end up going on the run from the government, something from a both of them was with the racketeering, but it was also a heroin smuggling scheme where they were actually smuggling heroin from uh, China. And then typically they would give money to like elderly couples to like keep it in the, like, the, inside their car or what have, you know, like people that are like relying on not much. They don't have much money. Right. Uh, uh, and then they uh, they pay off the Coast Guards. And this is kind of how they were sneaking the heroin in. uh Jacob actually didn't run all that much. It's just I don't think it was really part of his personality to run, uh, to run from the cops. You know, he seems like the type of guy. It's like you know what, I'm gonna own up to what I did. Uh, so he turned himself in on April 14th, 1938. But uh, Lepke would uh would still decided that he was still still gonna keep on the run. Uh, at which point the government put out a five thousand a five grand uh uh reward was put out on them and uh during the two-year uh manhunt they that it quite literally spread across the globe people reporting they saw lepke in poland and palestine and across the united states and you know thomas dewey at one uh thomas dewey ended up requesting that the the reward be changed to twenty five thousand dollars, which at that time was that there's no chump change that was a lot of money uh uh, basically hoping that like one of the you know lower end uh, mob guys would be like oh, well I'm not turning down twenty five thousand dollars or maybe even one of the bosses would turn him in you know what I mean like uh, but uh, Lepke would end up uh, actually just turning himself in directly to uh, J Edgar Hoover uh, on some I guess the I guess the deal was like he was going to be shown a little bit of leniency but we'll find out that that's not what actually happened and. Uh, on a side note, I was doing, and in researching this episode, there apparently 
I, I can't confirm this story, but uh, Walter Winchell, he was like a famous radio personality slash like gossip columnist at the time, uh, helped negotiate the surrender. And then I went a little deeper into who this Walter guy was. Uh, apparently, he narrated the Untouchables uh, TV series, kind of like a, like a famous, like, you know, like a columnist or something like, you know, help negotiate, like probably the biggest mobster in the United States at the time to surrender i mean that's pretty crazy really and it ends up like narrating a tv show but basically about these events in a lot of ways um yeah and then it was revealed that like apparently lepke had been in new york the entire time like lepke had this reputation where you could lock him in a room with just books and he stay there for six months you know as long as somebody was bringing him food like uh it wasn't very hard for him to stay low because he wasn't one of these kind of flashy gangsters that had to be out in public and, you know, out drinking and having a good time. He just liked to read and be left alone. So it was quite easy for him to stay in New York. Jacob Shapiro, actually, on May 15th uh, would end up, uh, he would be convicted of like conspiracy and extortion and racketeering. He ended up getting sentenced to 15 life, uh, 15 uh, years in prison. Um there's no way of telling that the, this little bit I'm going to tell you. There's, I can't say with 100% certainty if it happened. Apparently, when Lepke was in jail, Jacob Shapiro was able to sneak in uh, a note simply saying, I told you so. And uh, he would have known exactly what this meant. But this was in reference to uh, Jacob Shapiro was one of the guys that was in support of uh, killing Thomas Dewey along with Dutch Soltz and... Uh, couple of others but jacob was the one that really pushed for killing thomas dewey i mean i mean in some ways jacob's right right like if you had listened to me maybe you wouldn't be in this situation i wouldn't be in this situation either um jacob would he have enough dying of a heart attack in 1947 um but leading up to basically the entire time he was in prison, he'd tell everybody, uh, you know, if we had just taken care of duty, uh, Dewey, none of this would have happened. And I mean, we talked about it on the previous episode. I, I, I tend to kind of agree with him. <laughs> I mean, I think it's one of those things that either us sitting here right now or Jacob sitting in jail, you just don't know. And I can see why Jacob would want to say, I told you so. But, yeah. um, I mean, you just, you never know what would have happened. And I mean, in the end, it's probably Jacob with all of these guys, Shapiro, uh, Bookhalter, all of them were, they were going to go down. And to, I think that's a really typical criminal blame game. Oh, if we had just done what I said, we'd all be fine. And if we just use this story as a, uh, as a learning tool, nobody gets out of this. And especially th these bigger names that we're going, we've talked so much about, uh, Louis Lepke Bulkhalter, Louis Capone and Mendy Weiss. What happens to these, the biggest names in murdering? Now we're finally, we're at the really top of the org chart here. Yeah. Yeah. Lepke was arraigned in, uh, uh, to court on, uh, May 9th, 1941 for the murder of Joel Rosen. We talked about, we talked about that murder on the, uh, previous episode too. Uh, Abe Rellis was, uh, would also implicate Lepke and like four other murderers and like to make out matters worse. Another guy named Albert uh, Tannenbaum would also end up uh, testifying. 
Uh, he was also another member of Murder Inc. Basically, yeah, a jury would end up taking like four hours to uh, come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, they were all guilty in uh, first degree uh, murder, which was an automatic uh, death sentence. Uh, yeah, and uh, Lepke's lawyers, along with, uh, you know, Louis Compone and Mandy Weiss, uh, they would end up taking this, they would end up making appeals and then it would end up going all the way to the Supreme Court. And But in 1941, the Supreme Court affirmed that Lepke's uh, conviction, 7-0, to zero, and he basically had no other options. There was no other appeals to make. And on uh, January 1944, Lepke was uh, turned over to New York State, where he was sent to Sing Sing Prison, where he would be killed. Uh, Lepke would make some pleas for his life, but they obviously, you know, obviously didn't work. And on March uh, 4th, 1944, Lepke finally got what was coming to him. And he was killed by old Sparky. Louis Capone and Mendy Weiss were killed a few minutes before Lepke. Uh, and like I pointed out earlier, they, they were part of all these appeal processes. And uh, yeah, that's it, man. Like that's those are all the major guys, the basically that were sentenced to death because of a Rellis. And, and this is that's the downfall of Murder Inc. Like you know, Lepke's dad, there's no head anymore. I mean, it's just amazing. This whole story comes down. Everybody's dead right now where we stand. Really, the the only two people that are really left standing are Albert Anastasia and Abe Rellis. But that's not going to last for long with almost all of these big players having been found guilty. They're put to death. What happens to Abe? And does Abe Rellis live happily ever after? You could tell us uh, from giggling it, uh, it, it, it yeah. it's not a happy ending. <laughs> but uh, yeah, on uh, November 12th, uh, 1941, Abe Relis fell from his window and he was in room uh, 623 at the Half Moon Hotel uh, with two uh, guards at the door. This happened. This actually happened during the uh, Lepke, Lewis Capone, Mendy Weiss trial. That's why uh, Albert Tenenbaum's uh, testimony was so important because there was nobody to collaborate Abe's story. Who knows? The appeals process might have worked. Um, initially, it was reported that Abe Willis like tried to lower himself out the window using like a combination of like wiring and tied up bed sheets into like a rope, uh, and it simply came undone, and uh, he fell to his death. Me personally, I just think this is absurd because everything that I've read about Abe Rellis, uh he was terrified of being killed by, you know, fellow members of Murder, Inc. Uh, he didn't want to leave the police protection even for a minute, really. He wanted a guard with him at all times. So I don't know, why was he trying to escape? It just doesn't make, doesn't make much sense to me. What makes a little bit more sense to me, though, is Abe Rellis was getting ready to talk about Albert Anastasia. Um, was And uh, the... He had information that directly directly connected Albert Anastasia to the murders of a Teamsters Union official, Morris Diamond and Peter Panto. Morris Diamond was a high-ranking Teamsters rep. He was actually trying to get the likes of Albert and his kind out of the Dock Workers Union. And Peter Panto was a was a he was a labor organizer that led a revolt against the. Basically, the corrupt uh, ILA, the I I L U, the International Longshoremen's Union, um, that the likes of like Albert and his friends, uh, 
they basically ran like a Ponzi scheme in a lot of ways. Like they were stealing from the workers. They were stealing from the pension fund. It's all di- all different types of horrible stuff. And, and I don't know if you know anything about like longshoremen work. Like it is hard, brutal work. And it's dangerous. And, they, you know, they're just stealing from guys that are just trying to make ends meet and raise their family. Um, but as you can kind of see, like with these two murders uh, with uh, Panto and the Morris Diamond, like we're not dealing with say like killers killing other killers we're dealing with guys that were like highly respected members of society you know with uh with the blue collar workers and even the middle class workers and people who were like legitimate union men um so if albert got implicated in these murders it was gonna wind up like really bad for uh everyone involved um and if you know, say Albert ended up getting implicated in these murders, and he he himself starts seeing like, oh, maybe I can face the death penalty. If Albert starts talking, that's when you start getting to the like the very tops of organized crime in New York, and potentially could have taken out the the entire um, could have taken out the entire mafia. And this is to me where. Um, it seems believable that this like as soon as they found out that he was going to start talking about Albert. Uh, this is when the commission decided they were going to start doing something about it. You know, as a little side note, though, when Albert heard that maybe Abrels was going to start talking about him, he ran. But probably in the more unlikely spots, he like ran to the army. So he joined the army for a bit and actually became like a technical sergeant. I don't know what that term means in the army anybody's in the army just tell me what that actually means but from what i read he was like actually training soldiers how to do like longshoremen work because it was a skilled labor how to unload ships and pack ships properly and to get as much cargo out and in as quickly as possible um he would actually get rewarded for a medal for his service and he ended up earning his uh citizenship during the stint in the army i think there was a like a detective and the prosecutor, and they asked him about it afterwards. Like, I don't even thought about looking, you know, at the army when we were trying to find Albert. <laughs> Pretty brilliant idea. Like basically hide right out in the open. A technical sergeant is, uh, in World War II was somebody who had a specific knowledge, a technical expert, and yeah. uh, I, they don't have it anymore. I think it's uh, that kind of. Uh, speciality has been split into different ranks but you could see that they probably would bring somebody aboard because he would have been pretty old he would have been in his early 40s which would have you know that's certainly no spring chicken to uh join up into the army even during wartime so he must have had a a special a specialty in longshoremanship and unloading ships and that sort of thing for it to have been even considered to join the the military at that point yeah so that's that's what ended up that's what he ended up doing right so i mean that's pretty pretty great like i mean one day we're gonna do like i'll probably end up doing like a whole series in albert anastasia because he just led such a just such a crazy life what actually happened to abrellis i mean I, to me there's a couple of things that maybe are possible i mean we had talked about earlier how terrible he was just to put the final touch is that he, so he does he he is somehow goes out of the window at this hotel in Coney Island and the the big question is how and why that it happened yeah um 
like I pointed out, I mean, earlier, I think I personally think like the commission was like, as soon as he was going to start talking about Albert, they are the ones who uh, decided that we're going to try to do something about this. But I mean, there's other possibilities. Like, I mean, we talked about earlier, just how horrible he was to the guards. I wouldn't put it past them. Maybe one of the guards, they're like, you know what? Like, we're done with this guy. He's a murderer, too. Like, why Why is this guy going to get off with everything? They just chucked him out the window themselves. <laughs> uh, that's a possibility. Um, I mean, the possibility is he I simply killed himself by accident. Like, he actually did just climb out the window and, you know, fell. I don't I think it's a little ridiculous because if you. <laughs> If you kind of look at where the body was found, it's so far away from where the window was, right? So if it was just simply like the ropes gave out that he create that he made or the out of these bed sheets, he wouldn't his body wouldn't have been where it was. Like it it indicates that somebody either chucked him out or he like he jumped out. I mean by himself. I just because the body's so far away from where the the window is. But you know, my personal opinion, I think. The Frank Costello and the commission, I, I believe they paid off the guards and uh, to get to Rella so they can take care of their business. Um, and it would be incredibly tough to prove this anyways, because the only way that you would be able to find out whether, you know, it was like Frank Costello and the commission that uh, did this. One of the guards that got paid off would have to talk and they're not going to talk. There's no cameras at that time, really. They, this idea of like mobile like mobile surveillance or what have you that just didn't exist. So one of those guys would have to talk, and none of them were going to talk. So how would you prove it? And to me, like, you just got to kind of just do the process of elimination. Like, who had the most to lose if Abrellis was going to talk? It was the commission, right? It, like I said, if Albert is on the, you know, potentially looking at old Sparky, and he starts talking, they're all going to go down because Albert knew, knew everything. He was part of the the higher ups, right? He was part of the holy of the holies. Um, here, like, there's no cameras, right? So they, they I don't know. We're just kind of guessing at this point. I don't know. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. I mean, I would have to say that. Of the two possibilities, I think it's probably the least likely that the guards just got sick of him and killed him. I think the guards probably did kill him, but of Paola from Frank Costello and the Mafia, I think that it's not completely outside of the realm of possibilities that Abe did do something stupid. They said that he would play tricks uh, on people, and maybe he was trying to jump out of the window and go scare that. But that seems unlikely. I think of the two possibilities, what's the most likely is the Mafia and the powers that be got to the guards and they killed him. I think that that's probably, I mean, that's the slam dunk of the the whole thing. But now it's really time to put an end to Murder Incorporated. What's the rest of the story? We have reached the uh, conclusion of Murder Inc. And uh, what le- uh, uh, what left is there to say? Well, there are, you know, well, there are a couple things in the in the history of the mob something like murder inc never happened again It'll probably surprise uh people considering the amount of success success it had once the uh murder inc trials happened the five major families uh began to just contract out hits on their own family members uh 
uh, contract hits uh, to their own family members. And once uh, once in a while, they were chair guys. Uh, you know, they came to the conclusion that having a gang that was exclusively for killing was just uh, too much of a risk, as proved by Abe Rallis and others talking, because it could potentially drag the entire commission down with it. When you have like individual families taking care of its own hits, the potential of all the other families uh, going down with it obviously drops dr- dr- drastically, right? You got a looking at a different angle. What was murdering? Uh, you know, isn't murdering just like kind of a natural tribal mechanism of like an organized uh, of organized physical violence that you know every society, big or small, that reaches a certain level of organization, like. I, I think so. You know, before Murder Inc., the, the violence that happened in organized crime and it was like random, personal, petty. But most importantly, it was disorganized. Um yes, Murder Inc. like never came back, but the you know, like the lessons learned from it, you know, stayed. You know, no, no longer remembers the mafia just flying off uh, half cocked uh, frequently. Murder would be, you know, organized, not personal, and most importantly, efficient. When you're talking about a criminal element, it's really hard to have a professional, efficient murder organization, especially, you know, who's really their whole and sole job is to murder people. And you're doing it really for crime. You know, if you take a look at something like snipers in the military, they're doing it for something bigger, a country, this, that. And I think it weeds out some of the people who are maybe doing it just for basically for being psychos. Uh, and yeah. something like the army, right? And, police hopefully they're really trying to weed out that you don't have just pure people who want to hurt and abuse people and kill for enjoyment and with murder inc and with any with a criminal organization you're you're really attracting those sorts of people so i can see why they did an experiment with this murder inc it didn't it worked pretty well for a while but I think that keeping it inside of the families probably was a better thing in the end because it was a lot more easy to control. Oh, yeah. You know, and if like one guy got caught, he can't he's not going to burn down the Gambino and the Bonanos and the Colombos and everybody else with them where this potentially if Abrellis, you know, didn't end up trying to fly. He really could have just taken them all down with him, you know, Um also, with the, the like the death of Murder Inc. too would also mark the uh, uh, point of when Jewish organized crime would, would become less and less powerful. Like it didn't happen all at once, but like no longer was uh, Jewish organized crime going to reach the levels of say Lepke and Schultz and Abrilis again. Yes, there were like Jewish gangsters still, but it became kind of like an endangered species. You know, from this point on, the mafia became um, more and more exclusively Italian with the odd Irish and Jewish associate. Um, That was my biggest surprise during the research of this series was just how Jewish this entire time era of the mob was. Like I knew about Lepke a bit. I knew about I obviously knew about Meyer Lansky. I knew about Bugsy Siegel. But just how powerful the Jewish mafia at this time was like was a real shocker for me. And uh, I'm sure for our audiences, it's probably going to be the biggest eye opener that they're going to get from this series. It really does seem that 
by this point, the mafia, the organized crime is, is an Italian organization. And when we'll see some different places where that's not exactly true, but the, the Italians are really taking it over and Jews and Irish are going to be satellites to the main show. Even Hispanics, and as we move on later, especially in a place like New York City, these other ethnicities will be associate will become mafia associates, but they're never really running the show. Oh yeah, for sure, right? And just in particular, in like Jewish organized crime, like it was really big, and it was really big for a time period, and then it just stopped being like really big. And like I said, there was associates, but they would never reach the power that they reached during, say, the heyday of murdering. It's just not going to happen again. You know, it's never. I don't think it's ever going to happen again. Sparring, you know, some black swan event or something happens. I just don't see it happening. Right. Uh, um, just basically as a community, they moved on. Really, they moved up within. They moved up within American society, and they kind of left this part behind them. There's a book uh, that I used uh, for the research during this series, uh, "Tough Jews" by Rob Cohen, and he talks about this where. This part of Jewish history in America, like they, they just kind of moved on past murder inc. Like the the community itself, just just not part of it anymore. Really, like where the the Italian community, I'm not. It's not saying like all Italians or what have you. It's just like it stayed within the Italian community for a much longer time. It's still there to this day. You know, we're doing a podcast on it. So with that, we're moving on from Murder, Inc. into all sorts of new different avenues. If the people out there, if there's some aspect of organized crime that you'd really love for us to delve into, reach out, email, Facebook, social media. And if you want to help us out, the best way to help us out is to tell your friends so that your friends can become friends of ours. Yeah, guys, I really hope you enjoyed uh, this series because I I had a blast researching it. I learned a ton. Hopefully you guys learn a ton. And yeah, make sure to tell your friends so they become friends of ours. Forget about it. You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment, a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media and how to support the show, go to our website. A to Z HistoryPage.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at A to Z HistoryPage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. 
Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.